God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This is the one of the most exciting days of the year, with one of the most exciting stories you'll ever hear. But let's talk about stories for a moment. On television, there's one of those classic little sitcom jokes, and it goes back a long way. Someone sees or thinks that the end is near. Sometimes it's huge. There's a tornado headed their way. There's a hurricane. Sometimes the building starts shaking from an earthquake. How about this one? They've been trapped in an avalanche in a cavern or a cabin, and suddenly they start praying. Now we all know what that prayer sounds like, don't we? Mm -hmm. Oh God, I never pray to you. God, we've gotten out of touch a bit. But if only you'll save me right now, and then they promise something, right? Mm -hmm. Right, they promise God, God, if you'll save me right now, I'll be in church every Sunday until the day I die. Or, if they're more of a rascal, they'll say, God, I'll quit doing the bad things, I promise. Now, because it's a sitcom, we all know at the end of this episode what's going to happen. They're going to be rescued. Everything will be okay. And then, at the very end of the episode, what always happens? Do they keep their vows? No. no. And then what usually happens at the very end? There's some joking back and forth. Hey, are you still going to church every Sunday? Oh, you know, I skipped it this week. The big game's on. And then what happens? There's that crash of thunder. Something mysteriously falls off the walls, right? And we all kind of laugh a little bit nervously. Let's just hold on to that for one moment. At that time, says the Lord, I'll be the God of all the families of Israel, and they'll be my people. Now, since the beginning, God has promised he'll take care of his people. Jeremiah is talking to them in the aftermath of their turning away from God. God's people not listening to a succession of prophets and priests who warned them, warned them for years. God's judgment's not sudden. They told them that all they needed to do was to stop what they're doing and turn back to God, to live justly. Why does God do that? I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, have I continued my faithfulness to you. Now, on the one hand, God's motivation is not difficult for us to understand. It's his love for us. But sometimes it gets to be a bit hard to wrap our heads around the idea, because he says he's going to love us forever. He's going to forgive us no matter what we've done. Now, we understand that kind of love on some level with our spouses, with our children, with someone in our lives. But we also see what happens when that love fades. We've all seen or maybe experienced divorce and the pain it causes family. And sometimes we think about an everlasting love. We wonder, God, is it really true? Again, I will build you, he said, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. It's just not a love that forgives and moves on. It's a love that wants to restore us, to build us up into who we should be, to plant again, to have fun, to see us healed, to go out into the world and share that love. Our reading from Jeremiah ends with this. There shall be a day when sentinels will call in the hill country of Ephraim, come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. That's going to be a day of great rejoicing. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. The psalmist understands God's great love for us. He sings out that we should give thanks to him. Why? Because his mercy endures forever. This is a song that was used as an entrance song that they would sing at the temple when they're going up during Passover. Jesus probably heard it being sung on that Passover. It proclaimed God's deliverance from Egypt, 
And years later, after they returned from judgment, that Jeremiah and Isaiah and the others talked about, they looked at it as God's forgiveness from their exile. God does not give us what we deserve. His love overcomes the mess that we make of life and everything that happens to us in this broken world. And God, when he calls out, when we call out to him, is always faithful to save. The psalmist writes, The Lord is my strength, my song, and he's become my salvation. The psalmist is telling us that he used to just sing and worship God. He'd come to synagogue and the temple, but now he knows God is his salvation. And unlike a sitcom or movie character, he understands the gravity of what God did. He writes, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. He's promising to follow through on what he promised to do, to show God's love to the nations. But then the psalmist says something interesting. That same stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Who is this rejected stone? The one that becomes the cornerstone, the foundation of salvation. Christians, since the beginning, have read this psalm, since Jesus' resurrection, and said, Jesus, Matthew, Paul, Peter, they all attest that Jesus is the one who came to fulfill David's proclamation. On this day, the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Our gospel begins after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And Jesus has been crucified since Friday. And the disciples are all in hiding. All of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all write to say the gospel. Who was there in the morning? A group of women. Most of them named Mary. And they'd come to the tomb early on Sunday morning. They were there after their Sabbath rest to finish preparing Jesus' body to stay in the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat in it. Now the Gospels all agree on what was happening, but each one emphasizes, I think, what the eyewitnesses thought was important. The women weren't expecting an earthquake. They weren't expecting an angel. One of the Gospels tells us that they were discussing how they were going to beg or bribe a guard to roll the stone away so they could go in and finish preparing his body. Instead, the miraculous happens. The earth moves, the stone rolls away, and there's an angel. And what's the first words out of the angel's mouth? Do not be afraid. Why does he say that? Imagine for a moment you're standing out in our graveyard for a, out in the gra our graveyard. You're visiting a relative, you're visiting a friend. Suddenly the earth starts shaking. An angel descends. And oh, everybody who's around you suddenly decides to play dead. How would you feel? What would you think was going on? Probably the end of the world. Do not be afraid. But then he gives better news. Jesus has been resurrected. He's not in the tomb any longer. You can go in and look. But let the disciples know he's going to meet him in Galilee. Go, find him. And as they're on their way running to tell Peter and the disciples what the Jesus and what Jesus had been telling them for years. We hear this in the Gospels. We get verses like, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Or, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Or, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This was being fulfilled on an Easter Sunday. Jesus had been resurrected. He'd been changed, not simply resuscitated. And off they go running. And Jesus meets them. 
and he calls out a greeting. And all they can do in response is to fall at his feet and worship him. As you're reading the Gospels, as you're listening to the Easter story, remember, it's interesting, the women recognize him right away. Others don't. He's changed. His uncle, Cleopas, walks from Jerusalem to Emmaus with him. He doesn't realize it's his nephew until Jesus blesses the meal that night. Would you recognize your nephew? Those of you that have nephews, if they start walking with you on the road for several miles? I hope so. Something's changed with Jesus. But the ladies, they know the voice of their shepherd. Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now we find ourselves in our Acts reading seven or eight years after the resurrection. The good news has been preached throughout the area where Jesus lived. It's gone throughout Judea and Galilee and all the surrounding countryside. But to this point, all accepting the good news have been Jewish, either by birth or by coming into the Jewish faith. And one day it's lunchtime. Peter's praying and he's hungry. And God shows him a giant sheet full of animals to eat. The problem is they're all unclean. And Peter thinks maybe he's being tested. He says, Lord, I can't eat these things. And God says, do not call anything impure that I have made clean. They do this three times and the vision is over. And it says as the vision is over, there's a knock on the door of the place he's staying. Funny thing is, the day before, an angel came to a man named Cornelius. But Cornelius is a centurion, he's a Roman. But the Bible describes him this way. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. They gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. The angel comes to Cornelius and tells him his prayers and his actions have been answered. To go and find Peter, they tell him where to find Peter. And have him come to, tell, to talk to you. So the two men Cornelius sends just happen to arrive bit of a coincidence. At the same time this vision is getting over with Peter as he's pondering in his heart. They talk. The next day Peter and six of his brothers from the church go with him to Cornelius' house. And Peter still seems unsure about what's going to happen. He asks Cornelius, why did you send for me? So Cornelius tells him about the angel and says he wants to hear the good news. And Peter responds, well, God is no respecter of persons. And then he tells him this. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we were witnesses to all that he did in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear. Not to everyone, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses. And who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Peter told him simply that Christ came. That Christ died and that Christ was risen, and that God now would, for anyone who believes in him, they can receive forgiveness of their sins through his name. Everyone. This is the day God flung the doors of the church open, but he made sure the apostles knew, and knew that everyone meant everyone, that because of what Jesus has done, anyone from anywhere can call upon the name of the Lord and believe that Jesus was risen from the dead and be forgiven of their sins. Rescued from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. Adopted into his family and made joint heirs with Christ. God has shown his grace, his love, and his mercy time and time again. God's people returned to their homes like Jeremiah prophesied. 
The psalmist says that his mercy endures forever and affirms it. But most importantly, that Jesus came and lived among us, that he died. But more importantly, he was resurrected to bring us all into God's family and his kingdom. Now this morning, along with remembering the risen